I pledge to do my best to save lives. To conduct audits and reviews with integrity. Defending and upholding the truth. Whether you're a doctor, lawyer, accountant, or any other professional, you're not immune to costly, unfortunate events. It happens to the best of us. Protect your career with Chubb's Insurance for professionals. Not just insured, Chubb Insured. Visit chubb.com slash my. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury, and this is Matt Splained. Uh, last week, we jetted off into the virtual realm of the metaverse. This week, we're back in the real world with, well, the humble office and what the places we work in are likely to look like from now on. Haven't we covered the future of work from every imaginable angle, Matt? Hey, Rich. Well, I know it's been talked about a lot, and not just on this show, so I hope we're looking at it from some slightly different points of view today. But mm. it does connect to what we were talking about last week. As you mentioned, we were talking about the metaverse, you know, this turbocharged internet, and how it will change the way we live and we work and we play. So those changes to the way we work, they're not just in terms of the possibilities of the metaverse itself to create, say, virtual working spaces, mm-hmm. but, but it's more about the steps that companies are taking now. So during that show, we mentioned Mark Zuckerberg's comment on the Vergecast podcast back in July and his intention to base Facebook's working practices around the developments that the company is making with virtual reality and remote working spaces, which is essentially turning the company into a giant R&D project for future of work methodologies. And, and how does that differ from other work-from-home policies? Well, I think the superstar cities concept is something that a lot of our listeners should already be familiar with. So the term was popularized in a 2006 paper for the economics think tank, the National Bureau of Economic Research. It was written by Joseph Giorco, Christopher Mayer, and Todd Sinai. And the idea is essentially very simple. It's that certain cities become magnets for talent. Mm. And that talent, when it arrives, demands high pay. So suddenly there's a lot of disposable income in those cities and other forms of economic activity spring up to absorb all that disposable cash. Property developers, bars, restaurants, high-end retail, the creative industries. And those cities then require the infrastructure to meet the supply side of all of that demand. So things like public transport to move all of those uh, ancillary and service workers around, roads for all the expensive cars that, of course, those high-paid workers can now afford to buy. And they uh, they become like hives of innovation in the process. Well, that's the general idea. You know, that was something that uh, I touched on at the end of the Metaverse episode, that when we spend time online in any kind of virtual environment, there's currently a very limited load that the servers can accommodate at any given instance. So for the metaverse to have the same kind of creative energy and effect that our towns and cities have, it needs to have those 
same elements of scale and chaos that mm. you know teeming city street feel i know that we haven't seen teeming city streets for a long time but mm. you know i'm sure people can remember uh i'm i'm a music guy so i tend to look at it from that point of view you know it's that idea that you might be sitting in a bar or a cafe and you hear that someone is talking about their band and they need a guitarist and you think hey i'm a guitarist and you strike up a, com- a conversation and the next thing you know, you know, you're playing to a million people on a beach in Brazil and Kirk Hamner is your guitar tech. <laughs> you see, you missed a pun there. We've uh, struck up a chord and Kirk Hammer is a guitar tech, please. Well, anyway, obviously a bit of a fantasy there. Well, yeah, especially as my guitar style is best described as rat on the ceiling. <laughs> uh, lots of scratching, the occasional thud. Uh, as a guitarist, I'm often described as a great xylophone player. <laughs> but, you know, that ability to spawn innovation and create more opportunities is key to the growth of superstar cities. They turn themselves into these self-sustaining talent magnets that are greater than the sum of their parts. And changes in the way we work, uh, like the ones Facebook are suggesting, uh, threaten the superstar status of these cities? Well, they could do. So look at the start of the pandemic in the US. There was this huge exodus from cities like New York, which were Mm. hit early on. They became virus hotspots. And there were all these pronouncements that New York was dead, its time was over. Mm -hmm. But by and large, the people who became refugees from the city were its most well-heeled inhabitants, you know, the ones who had, yeah, holiday homes in Florida or the Hamptons or who could afford to rent some mansion by the sea pretty much indefinitely. And the remaining residents of New York did not greatly mourn their absence, it it can be said. Uh, So more interesting is what starts to happen to a superstar city when some of that upper echelon decamps for other places. I imagine a, a loss of uh, tax base and uh, income. Certainly, that's something to worry about over the longer term. And a lot of that also depends on how cities are funded. In the US, cities are largely self-funded by local property, sales, payroll taxes. But of course, this varies from country to country. Mm. In some countries, a lot of countries, municipal funds and budgets are decided and allocated by central governments. Mm -hmm. So migrations don't directly impact on city budgets, certainly at least in the short term. So as long as that talent within the country isn't being lost abroad, and that talent is still creating the, the same value domestically, there can be positive effects in those marginally declining superstars. Residential and commercial values might fall, leading to more affordable rents and, of course, property. So you start to see a a different kind of innovation, one that isn't so dependent on large injections of speculative capital. Well, a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, an Aussie battery technology startup that's happy to stay in a neighbor's garage. You know, as those barriers to entry fall, people are more willing to invest their time in projects that might appear to be, you know, more marginal. The Mm. the loss to them is in time rather than in huge sums of their own and other people's money. So it can spur innovation in areas away from those traditional areas of funding. That could be something in the arts. It could be businesses that serve the neighborhood in terms of food and retail. And of course, it can also boost diversity in terms of businesses and business owners. Of course, it varies from country to country, but there are often specific groups 
that are less likely to be uh, supported by financial institutions, whether they be banks or venture capitalists in any given country. So this kind of decline can serve to boost minority participation. Well, I don't necessarily want to say minority. For example, women entrepreneurs often find it harder to access institutional funding. And women aren't a minority in any sense of the word. So Mm. we also have to be careful about what we mean when we say decline as well. So the hollowing out of cities, particularly when it means the middle and upper classes moving out to the suburbs, that has its own devastating effects, whether a city is a superstar or whether it's declining. Mm. But certainly there's the potential to encourage innovation and spread it throughout the country. So we talk about the growth of superstar cities, but we often don't focus on the decline that it creates elsewhere within those countries. Mm. Again, in a a system like the US where towns are self-funded, those superstar cities represent a drain to other municipalities because all that talent heading to Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Seattle, Miami, Houston, it has to come from somewhere. So that means less revenue for those smaller towns and cities. And, you know, I'm equally guilty of that. I'm from a small town in the UK, but here I am in KL in Malaysia. And it isn't just about municipal governments and their income. It hampers the ability of those towns to innovate and evolve because a big chunk of their creators and innovators have gone elsewhere. But if we reverse that process, doesn't it create rising prices in those uh, smaller towns and cities? Well, I keep talking about the US because it's quite easy to see those trends arising across the country. So it makes for a good kind of case study here. The US hasn't kept pace with market demand for new houses since the last financial crash. As a result, you're seeing house prices rising across the country, mostly because of a lack of supply, but also because workers can now take advantage of flexible working practices and live a lot further away from the places they work. Mm. They can work from home most days of the week, and they'll put up with a longer commute for one or two days during that week. Again, you know, we're still mainly talking middle class or professional occupations. We're not at that point where barristers and mechanics can work remotely or hundreds of kilometers from the place that employs them. So going back to your question, yes, you will likely see prices rising in towns and cities that are experiencing a a reversal of this talent drain. But at the same time, the prices in the superstars will tend to trend downwards. So eventually, or hopefully at least, you see those two trends converging around some kind of median, or if not a median, then a reduced differential. Um, Is it fair to say you're arguing for a predominantly work-from-home future? Well, I was listening to a recent Planet Money episode called The uh, Two Indicators, Will Remote Work Kill the Office? And irritated me a bit, I have to say, because uh, I, I know the idea was for each presenter to take a position and argue their case. Will we go back to the office or will we work from home? And maybe it was unintentional, but it kind of presented the issue as being an either or. Either right. we go back to the office or we continue to work from home. And I think the future is going to be a, a bit more complicated than that. For sure. Uh, more of a hybrid Well, I think so. You know, the pandemic has shown that for some countries, remote working practices allow them to continue 
pretty much as normal. And as we've discussed before, it can even save them money in terms of saved rent and infrastructure and communications cost. Mm. Uh, you know, how much empty real estate is there in our downtown districts right now? Even the companies that have reopened offices, they're following mandates that reduce the number of workers that can be on site. Mm. They may have had to overhaul ventilation systems. They've had to put in traffic flow monitoring systems. So they're spending a lot of money in order to have fewer people occupying the same floor space. So continuing the flexible working patterns can allow companies to move to cheaper locations and to upsize or downsize accordingly for the workers they need on site at any kind of given time. Okay, when we come back, how cities and developers are fighting to get us back into the office. You're tuned into Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Benchmark for Managers, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. This is Matt Splained. I'm Rich Bradbury. And uh, before the break, uh, Matt, you mentioned that companies are starting to re-examine their needs in terms of physical space, uh, especially given the changes to the costs and opportunities of those decisions. What happens to the downtown districts of those superstar cities if their commercial tenants move away? Well, we've tended to split big cities into residential and commercial zones, which is great when the economies are booming. You know, in those commercial and downtown districts, you have all the ancillary businesses that service those commuting workers. You have the malls, the cafes, the banks. But without those commuters, There's no customer base, there's no residential base to support those businesses. And that's something that's been very evident in downtown KL. I recently did an interview with uh, Shin Zeng, one of the co-founders of Rex KL, for another podcast, The Reflexive City. And I was talking to him about living and working in the downtown area during the pandemic. And it's interesting because Shin says that from, uh, you know, on a selfish level, the pandemic has made the downtown area a lot more livable. That he's starting to see, you know, the emergence of a, a kind of neighborhood identity. But at the same time, it's been very hard for his businesses. It's been very hard for Rex KL because even though its F&B tenants are on apps like Grab and Foodpanda, there isn't a big enough residential population for them to serve. And of course, there's Mm. an awful lot of businesses in that area. Mm. And suburban residents either don't see these restaurants on their apps because they're outside the delivery area or because they have so much more local choice. Now, I know it's probably not our main focus uh, for today, but, but, you know, briefly, how do cities reverse that kind of hollowing out uh, with uh, smart city kind of planning? Well, that one question is an entire show or even a a series of shows. So, uh, yeah, we can't really tackle it today. But DBKL, along with uh, other partner organizations and agencies, I know is planning to do something to address this in KL. Cities around the world are going to have to look at the way that they zone districts. Boring as it is to talk about something as mundane as zoning on a tech show, uh, to create neighborhoods that are resilient, not just to pandemics, but to any economic shocks. 
there need to be a lot more mixed developments in our cities. And part mm. of that is also to embrace mixed income communities rather than this trend to ghettoize communities according to income level and increasing the need for people to travel to work. What do you see as uh, one way that downtown districts can evolve? Well, I'll, I'll get there in a slightly roundabout way, as is my fashion. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so uh, that, that Planet Money podcast that I mentioned earlier um, and the reason I think there will be more hybrid working practices, we already know that you know, physically working from home doesn't work for everyone, that there mm. are too many pressures at home, uh, family members, pets. Uh, you might not live in a place that's very convenient to work from. And, you know, the fact that your gym is a stone's throw from where you work, not from where you live, you know, a, a lot of the things we've oriented in our lives are towards the places we work. Mm. So it's a million big and little things that make it less optimized than our offices were pre-pandemic. And it also goes to that chaos creation element that I said was missing from our current proto-metaverse environments. Those uh, chance meetings and the sparks that they can create. Yeah, it's not necessarily, you know, happenstance meetings. Uh, I know not everyone wants to form the next incarnation of Popwellit itself. There's a reference that will mean nothing to pretty much everyone, uh, except maybe you. Uh, it, it happens within companies just as much. You know, it's that thing about talking to colleagues from other departments or on other teams and the insights that that gives you that can help you with your own work. Mm. That's a lot less likely to happen when we only see our own small pool of colleagues on a, a Zoom or team screen. So it's good to have physical interactions with the people we work with, not just the people who are directly on our team. So we've talked a lot about the filter bubbles of social media and the harm that they can create. And even before social media, large companies often fell victim to that kind of groupthink filter bubble. Yeah. So we don't want to reinforce those weaknesses at a time when we have the opportunity to revise our approach to work. So how do you get to that halfway house? You can't expect to work remotely when you choose and then pop into a neighborhood sub-office when you want a bit of company. How many businesses can afford that kind of uh, infrastructure? Well, almost none, really. I, I think this is where we see co-sharing spaces come into the equation. Right. Uh, those will enable companies to keep uh, prestige addresses and give more flexibility to staff. So whether it's a Regis or a WeWork or a Common Ground, you know, WeWork may go down in history as being one of the most poorly timed expansions within a growing sector, you know, yeah. literally too much too early. I can see a lot of these bigger companies signing deals with uh, a particular co-working chain that allows their staff to come into those facilities, whether that be for a limited number of hours a month or on a permanent desk basis. Mm. That way they can interact with other people and more importantly, other people who work for the same company and live in the same area of them. So you get the freedom of choosing where you want to live and you get to work from there as well. But you also get that friction and interaction that helps to keep teams dynamic. Now, uh, we talk uh, about global teams, uh, but time zones are, are still a, a huge problem. You know, teams have to find a way at least to, to communicate in real time. 
Well, those kind of problems where you have team members in different countries are an easier fix than a lot of people think. Uh, even right now, my wife is working on projects where most of the clients are in the US. You set up different parts of the teams to work at different times of day with the necessary overlaps. If you do it well, you can actually speed up the entire working process because you don't have people waiting on each other. Mm -hmm. If that chain is well-oiled, some people are asleep or enjoying their leisure time while other people are working, and a client can ask for something and see it first thing in the morning without anyone having to work outside their normal hours. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, which are requirements for offices in terms of floor space, ventilation, and other measures uh, post-pandemic? Even if it's just co-share spaces, what are those offices even going to look like? Well, we don't often talk about property developers on this show. And oddly Thankfully. enough, yeah, well, oddly enough, I think I said something similar quite recently. Um, <laughs> and I mentioned rezoning earlier, but there are limits on uh, what we can do with commercial real estate in terms of its adaptive reuse, especially all those high rise office blocks that dot many of our cities. You mm. might not be able to adapt all those uh, spaces for res residential use. And, of course, there are limits to how far rents can fall simply because of the operating costs of the buildings. Uh, maintaining high-speed lifts, maintaining the common spaces and the lighting, uh, all of those ventilation and air conditioning systems. So we have all these structures that were built and predicated on a model that has changed or may actually be gone. And what we don't want are lots of abandoned buildings that fill with squatters like, you know, the Tower of David in Caracas and create their own social problems rather than mm. being part of the solution to those problems. So, um, you, you know, donkey and carrot kind of scenario, what will it take to tempt us back into the office? Um, one example I found via The Guardian, links as usual in our RSS feed, is to a new standard called Immune, which is being touted as a potential industry standard. The flagship of the project is a building called H3 in Bucharest, Romania, uh, but there are several uh, dozen buildings being built or retrofitted to varying degrees of the immune standard. Uh, there are some in London, there are some in Singapore. And H3 has all of the things that you'd imagine, you know, sliding doors, thermal cameras. What's different is the sealed quarantine room that you're taken to if you trigger the thermal camera. Uh, it has its own ventilation systems that are separate from the rest of the building. And it has UV sanitizing lamps that will disinfect it after uh, you're removed or presumably dumped into a shark pond in the basement. <laughs> I can sense a lawyer tugging at my arm. Okay, there's no shark pond. Um, no, but the idea is that you can quickly be separated from everyone else coming into the building uh, and, of course, without infecting the air for everybody else. The entrance area itself can quickly be vented and sanitized and the person who triggered the alarm can then be sent for medical checkups without endangering everyone else in the building. Even the lift shafts are disinfected with UV light, which I think is really cool. Uh, other modifications are less high-tech, uh, door handles that you operate with your arm or elbow rather than a hand, uh, round edges on fittings rather than right angles, uh, apparently Smart. corners allow germs to accumulate. I didn't know that. 
probably explains a lot about my house. Uh, <laughs> toilet cubicle partitions that are floor to ceiling and have their own extractors. To me, that's just civilized. Uh, robots that roam the uh, building out of hours uh, using ultraviolet rays again to sanitize all of the public spaces. Yeah, those uh, floor to ceiling things. That's just normal, right? Uh, anyway, uh, making the uh, physical changes then is one thing, but how do you convince people that they work, that, that it will make them safe? Well, as we know, most infection with COVID is from aerosol particles rather than surface contact, mm. hence those floor to ceiling partitions in the bathroom. Uh, and one of the mitigation methods is actually the simplest of all open the windows but of course most of our office buildings are built with sealed windows but when we look beyond the short term uh, of course these buildings may have a life of 50 years 100 years you know a, a long time so the next disease or pandemic might be something that is surface rather than aerosol transmitted But that's kind of the point about immune as a a building standard. It's not just something a bunch of developers have put together ad hoc as a PR measure. They've included health professionals, engineers, IT and systems experts, as well as those expected developers, building managers and architects. And it's an open source standard, which should allow it to grow and adapt and adopt the best ideas from across the industry. So visibility is very much key to the the confidence aspect of uh, of this program. But but is that visibility anything more than you know smoke and mirrors, theatre? Well, the placebo effect is anything but a placebo. You know, look at the run on petrol in southern states of the US following the ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline earlier this year. Mm -hmm. There was no actual shortage of gas or petrol, depending on what you call it. But the perception that there would be caused panic buying, emptying many gas stations and driving up local prices. So theatre is actually really important. Mm. So the H3 building has big information panels which display all kinds of data with screens that allow you to drill down even further. You can find out how much CO2 is being emitted on what floor or what the levels of uh, volatile organic compounds are in the air and in what parts of the building they're present. Uh, Ventilation systems have very visible ports that dispense antimicrobial hydrogen peroxide ions. So the psychology of this, the theatre of it, is actually really important. And do you think that's enough to get us back into the office? Well, obviously, with the Delta variant, all bets are off. A lot of companies that plan to phase on-site workers back in are now postponing those plans again. Uh, Maybe some cities need to look at freezing planned commercial developments or offer incentives to have them redesigned as mixed-use residential developments. At the same time, We can't afford for all those developers to simply go bankrupt. Uh, I mentioned the the Tower of David earlier. Mm. You know, those existing buildings will still need to be maintained. KL, for example, is full of buildings that are hundreds of metres tall. And that's the same with most major cities. So think of the devastation of bits falling off them, or worse, one collapsing. You know, it's why we always try and look at the, the widescreen picture on this show. We may have the flexibility to work from home in the future, but I don't think those office spaces are going to be going away. Thanks, as usual, for that, Matt. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
And of course, you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at Culture Matt. You can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about Culture Pop and its consulting services. For BFM 89.9, I'm Rich Bradbury here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.